Blog Talk Radio. Hello out there. This is Sam Maxwell, and you are here with the Veteran Solomon Podcast, the podcast that keeps you, the audience, active listeners, in the research process of the TV series about the Brooklyn Dodgers I am developing. Tonight, I am happy to welcome uh, not only a cultural historian, but a man who has written a biography about Branch Rickey. To the program, I welcome Leah Lowenfish. How are you doing, Lee? I'm fine. Nice to be with you, Sam. Absolutely. And let's get right into it, uh, specifically with your history in New York, your history with baseball, and how you came about uh, growing an appreciation for the Brooklyn Dodgers. Well, I grew up in the middle of Manhattan, Sam. I grew up not far from Central Park and uh, Midtown Manhattan. And I, uh, my father was a dermatologist, a doctor who had umpires as patients. And I actually got to know Babe Pinelli, who was, uh, whose last plate umpiring game was Don Larson's perfect game at Yankee Stadium when the Yankees beat the Dodgers in the 56 World Series. But my love of baseball went back almost 10 years early. I still remember uh, going to the polo grounds uh, on the uh, D train by subway, and uh, I was six years old. Johnny Antonelli was pitching for the Boston Braves. Little did he or I or anyone know that a few years later he would be a, a big pitcher for for the Giants. In fact, would be a part of the 54 World Series winning team. And I still remember going up that ramp and seeing the grass of the field through the concrete ramp. And I'm not the first one to tell you, I'm sure, but for a city kid who never really played much ball, just the sight of seeing that grass and and these guys in white and then gray uniforms, the visitors. I mean, I never. Uh, it's still vivid in my life. And uh, I went to the Pograms more than any other of the fields, but I went to Ebbets Field uh, occasionally, a Giant Dodger game where I root for the Giants. I was told that wasn't a good idea, but nothing happened <laughs> to me. And I rooted against the Yankees. Uh, uh, in fact, the Pat Mullen hit three home runs a day before my seventh birthday in a, in a second game of a doubleheader between the Tigers and the Yankees. And some Yankee fan had actually been telling me to root for a winner. And I was thinking about it, but once he hit those three home runs, had under 100 in his career, by the way, uh, I was never a Yankee fan and was always a National League fan. So that briefly is how I got started on this life love, long love of baseball. So what do you exactly remember about the area around the polo grounds? I know that there was a Coogan's Bluff where there's some, some row houses. Uh, what do you remember about the neighborhood? Well, it was unusual in the sense, Sam, that you you entered the stadium from the top and you walked down. That's why it was called the, the, the Coogan's Bluff. And I, the other thing I remember, it was it was really like a bathtub. It was painted a very uh, uh, dark green, and uh, the new city field for the Mets ha- tries to imitate uh, that green, although I remember the uh, the giant uh, polo grounds green being more of a forest green, and it was shaped like a horseshoe or a bathtub. And so if you were in the infield, uh, you had great views because... And even if you were in the left and right field corners, because it was well under 300 feet from home plate. 
But, boy, I, I don't believe I ever sat in the bleachers. But if you were, uh, you were 485 feet and more from home plate. So it was very unusual in that regard. But uh, it was – I also, another vivid memory I have, they sold an orange drink that the the man, uh, the vendor, uh, was like a space cadet. It was a silver uh, backpack he had and, he, and a spigot that he poured the, uh, the drink from. Uh, I've talked to other Giant fans who tell me that it wasn't as good as Needick's, uh, but what I remember is the silver uh, backpack as much as anything. That's very interesting. I'm guessing that that was uh, something of, of post-war world uh, of the right. polo grounds. And, and, you know, the other thing that's so important about the polo grounds, Sam, is that was the only uh, ballpark in the majors that had the clubhouse in center field. Mm-hmm. So you had... Uh, I mean, you know that uh, you, uh, I think most people remember the 51. Well, they've, they've read about the famous Bobby Thompson third playoff game. Uh, and and the, the, when the pitcher was knocked out, I mean, he walked to the clubhouse. And as I recall, they didn't wait until he got actually up the steps to the clubhouse. I have <laughs> memories. I may, I may be wrong on this, but I have memories that the – that the, the, the pitcher was was still maybe 450 feet from home plate and the game went on. Now, I, 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 that could be just because of something I saw on TV. But um, uh, there's that famous picture, too, of Ralph Branker sitting on the steps of the clubhouse, you know, saying, why me, why me, after he gave up uh, the home run to Bobby Thompson. You know, it, 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 when you think about that game, Sam, and I remember it so well because I was listening on my parents' uh, Crosley radio uh, that was, uh, I didn't know at the time that Crosley had owned the Cincinnati Reds there, uh, and we're still owning them, actually, but it was a floor model, and I had, I didn't have Russ Hodges on, I had the Dodger broadcast, but when he hit it, I remember calling my father at his office and excitedly, and Oh man! I mean, it, it, it's a, it was before four o'clock on a kind of cloudy afternoon, and it was televised nationally, which part, might be part of the reason uh, they only had a twenty thousand less than capacity at that game. Mm-hmm. But still, thirty-four thousand on a weekday uh, was a pretty good crowd. Uh, it's it a pretty great. pretty good crowd. I think it was a, uh, it might have been pretty warm for an October day as well, uh, or there was rain in the air, or something something along those lines that pre- prevented it from being a capacity capacity crowd. Um, but let's and move you know, down I, Manhattan. Let's uh, let's move down Manhattan into Brooklyn and uh, uh, go into a little bit of what the neighborhood looked like before the war and even during the war, because I know it rapidly changed. All the neighborhoods rapidly changed afterwards. Uh, and what exactly? Uh, I know. I know it was a slightly racially divided, but everybody kind of came uh, came together uh, behind the Dodgers. So, what did Brooklyn exactly look like? What What was the neighborhood layout uh, in terms of the demographics? Well, Brooklyn uh, had more churches than any any borough of New York, and and was probably in the top five in, in the country. In fact, by, at that time, in the 40s, Brooklyn was one of the fourth largest cities in the country. And 
the thing about the Dodgers and the thing that Branch, Branch Rickey, a farm boy from the Midwest who never lost that feeling of being a farm boy, uh, he understood that Brooklyn was the underdog. You know, New York had all the big businesses and the biggest banks, the shows, uh, you know, the, 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 the nightlife. Brooklyn was the, you know, the God-fearing and, and cantankerous borough. And, and they united behind the Dodgers. And uh, as a Giant fan, I, I picked that up later, almost historically. But, you know, I understood uh, what the Dodgers meant. Uh, they drew over a million people before Ricky got there. I mean, under, under McPhail, under Osher, in 1941. Then once Ricky built that great team in, in uh, after World War II, they drew almost two million, but they never they never got up to two million. And once the Jackie Robinson year happened to forty seven, his breakthrough year, they never came close to that attendance again. And uh, but that year forty seven, which I only have a very vague memory of, was such a special year in in uh, in, in baseball because uh, you had not only the Yankee Dodger another great World Series, but you had all the boys now fully back from the war. People forget that not everyone was demobilized in '46 because uh, World War II didn't end until you know uh, mid-August of '45. Uh, but '47, everyone was back, and it was a banner year. Uh, and never again would so many people come to the to the games. But when they came, they were all there were all kinds of groups there including a lot of black people for the first time. And, and, and you see pictures. Uh, you have uh, a, a really integrated uh, group of fans for the first time in, in, in 1947 and perhaps not matched again. So what was it like uh, in, let's say, 1939? You, you, uh, I'm, sure, I'm, I'm sure there were some uh, black members of the audience. There, there, it just wasn't prevalent like it was when Jackie that's, came along. That's correct, you know, and, and I think, you know, uh, I, I hate to be vague about this, but th- there's there's not uh, very hard information on what the breakdown of the, the fans were ethnically. Clearly, there weren't that many black fans. There was only before the integration of 47. Uh, and then I think the black fans... Still kept coming when you had Campanella and Newcomb and then Joe Black and Gilliam, you know. Um, mm. But, you know, what makes this a very poignant, almost tragic story is that as the black fans came, a lot of the white fans left. It, it wasn't just because of the integrated team, although it was clear there was a quota system by the 50s throughout baseball on the teams that did have blacks. But, you know, you had suburbanization happening. People were, uh, there was a housing shortage after World War II, and when the suburbs started being growing out in Long Island, people started to go out there, and they didn't come to, to, to many games at night as, the, as they used to. And then you also had the issue of free television. So um, it, was, uh, it was poignant, you know, what happened there. And even when Willie Mays came up to the Giants, the Giants didn't come close to drawing what they drew in '47 when they had that team that was called the uh, uh, 
the house records because they had 221 home runs, but only uh, finished fourth. That's yeah, that's very interesting. Just hearing about uh, the way suburbanization uh, got a handle on baseball, and especially because television uh, was being put into these suburban homes, it was uh, the uh, marketing of a microwave and a vacuum will change your life, and all the, all that jazz. Um, it's it was a very very interesting time in American history. Absolutely, and and you know the the people ask you know when the question of the Giants and the Dodgers come up and why people don't seem to be uh, as heart struck a half century later about the Giants leaving than they were about the Dodgers. Well, a, a good short answer to that is that the Dodgers lived in the community. I mean, somebody like Paul Erskine uh, uh, raised his kids in Brooklyn. I mean, he went back to Indiana, as you'll find out when you interview him next week. But he always used to say that whenever the kids had a problem in Indiana, he would call the pediatrician in Brooklyn because he, he knew he would get the best advice there. I mean, the, the Dodgers who lived in the community, like uh, Cal Abrams, they worked uh, as a, uh, clothing salesman, shoe salesman. Some of them, you know, played Santa Claus uh, uh, in, at Christmas time. So uh, the, uh, uh, that, that part of it uh, really made, a, uh, 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 was, made it so heartbreaking when they left plus the economic fact that the Dodgers were the most profitable team in in the in baseball and that uh, O'Malley left because he he thought that he would make more money in LA which he did you know and he also left because uh he didn't get the ballpark that he wanted but uh that's where it becomes such a tragic situation that cannot simply be blamed on Robert Moses and his desire to build more highways and put the Dodgers in Queens. I mean, it's, uh, you, you can never uh, forget that it was O'Malley's decision to become even richer than he was that, that, that uh, forced the team to leave and, uh, and why it's still a wound in the heart of, of millions of people who grew up at that time. And uh, a lot of those those players who lived in Brooklyn with the community, um, who were in some ways just as heartbroken. A lot of them were broke were uh, brought on by Branch Rickey. And before Branch Rickey even got to the Dodgers, he he built a crazy farm system in St. Louis. Uh, let's get into some of some of that uh, that element of Branch and and why he was such a pioneer um, in, in terms of the farm system. Well, he was a pioneer. He always said that necessity was the mother of invention. I mean, the thing about Branch Rickey that you have to understand is that he kind of came out of one of the most uh, hard scrapple areas of southern Ohio. Scioto County was the maybe the poorest county in Ohio, not a very rich farm area. But his parents were very religious. Uh, his father farmed but also preached. And his mother, uh, I'll never forget uh, Sam meeting some of Ricky's family and uh, saying that Brand and, and one nephew-in-law in particular telling me that Branch Ricky couldn't fail in life because Emily Ricky was his mother and Jane Moulton became his wife. And Emily Brown Ricky 
encourage Branch to go to college uh, while keeping his Methodist religion. And uh, the, the woman, the childhood sweetheart who became his wife, Jane Moulton, also appreciated college, but also was a generous, kindly person. And the, that influence on his life and his native brilliance combined to to make him into the kind of, of leader he was. And clearly, uh, if he had chosen to go into the ministry or go into law like he thought he was going to do so he could win the hand of Jay Moulton because Jay Moulton's family was well-to-do and they didn't like the idea of their daughter marrying a farmer and, and, and a baseball player, no less. So he, he would have been a good lawyer, but, but he had this ability to understand baseball players and baseball player development, which, as we know as fans today, it's a rarity, and only a handful of people over over the uh, the centuries of baseball, or certainly over a century and a half, have known how to put the dollar sign on the muscle, as he once described it, because he, he understood from having played the game as a catcher and not being very good, he understood what made good pitching and what made good athleticism. And and his keys were, as a farm system developer, uh, a developer were, can you run fast and can you throw hard? If you have those innate God-given abilities that, that, that really are God-given, we can teach you the rest. Uh, and, and that's what he did. And, and the farm system became his way to grow players cheaply because his teams never had money uh, until Sam Braden bought the Cardinals, and he did have money. Uh, and then the, he would keep the ones that were the best, and he would trade and sell the ones that weren't as good but maybe looked as good. And he succeeded because very few of the owners at the time when he came into into his success in the 1920s, they they didn't know how to develop players. They just bought them, and they weren't weren't always successful. And so when he came to Brooklyn in 1942, he was able to develop another farm system with his loyal developers and go for the African-American market that nobody had tapped. And uh, so he beat the owners twice, both in developing players and in in, in tapping the hitherto unused African-American player market. One of the players that he uh, that that he developed uh, for for the Cardinals, but eventually he became a big star in Brooklyn. Was Pete Reeser? Where did he first see Pete Reeser play? Well, that's a great question, Sam, because it just shows about how how wide his net was. Pete saw Pete Reeser playing as a teenager in St. Louis. Uh, St. Louis had a great uh, uh, trolley league; it was called uh, a- amateur leagues. In fact, if you ever watch a Cardinal game on TV, uh, and you see the pregame with the kids walking, uh, a a sea of red-clad kids. You know, that started back in the days of the trolley league, and and Ricky tapped that local talent tremendously. And Reeser, he he, uh, saw him when he was 15 years old. This was a switch hitter. He, uh, He became a driver for his key scout, uh, Charlie Barrett, Ricky's key scout, 
and and he signed him uh, as a moment he got out of gra- out of high school. But Commissioner Landers, uh, Ricky's big antagonist, didn't like the way Ricky was monopolizing all these kids, and he felt he had been signed uh, illegally and 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 put on a on a roster of a team where he never played. So Reeser was the best of the players that. Reeser that Landis freed after 1938, and he and Brooklyn picked him up. Uh, Larry McPhail, who got his start in baseball under Branch Rickey in Columbus. Now McPhail was a very wealthy man and ultimately became a real enemy of Rickey. But in, he was still on good terms with uh, with Rickey when he got to Brooklyn. In fact, Rickey recommended him for the Brooklyn jo- uh, job, and so Rickey says to McPhail, well, I'm only loaning you Pete Reeser. I want him back in St. Louis. Well, Pete Reeser plays so well in spring training, and Leo DeRocher, who Ricky had traded for in St. Louis, now managing Brooklyn, they see him, and there's no way he's going to go back. And so Reeser stays with the Dodgers, and people who saw him play, and unfortunately I never did, uh, I'm sure there's video or old tape of him. If he hadn't gotten injured by by running into walls and playing with reckless abandon, uh, Pete Reeser would have been Mickey Mantle 10 years before Mickey Mantle. Exactly. It, it's pretty remarkable. Uh, and Branch Rickey is one of the innovators because of the way Pete Reeser was crashing into the walls of uh, of cushions on the walls and, and batting helmets and all that stuff. Branch Rickey did everything. Yeah, and, and you know, part of the reason there was the feud with Ricky and McPhail is that McPhail actually experimented with helmets too, uh, maybe even a little earlier before Ricky. And McPhail was flying teams around the time of Ricky. But, you know, they were two, they were two remarkable men in in the history of baseball, you know, and, Mm -hmm. and, and because the history of baseball is the history of America, you know, it's very rare when two geniuses, uh, get along, you know, and uh, and McPhail, of course, is is rightly criticized for his opposition to integration, uh, but McPhail also deserves credit, you know, for 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 being one of the early innovators, as I said, in flying teams, in promoting the game. I mean, he was an amazing promoter, McPhail. Uh, yeah, and, and he 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 drew. I mean, the Yankees' largest attendance before. The Steinbrenner millions got in there. It was the McPhail's Yankees in 47, 46, I think, actually. Two, that was the record that that, uh, that stayed until Cleveland broke it a couple of years later. So it, it's uh, – uh, I love talking about these stories because they're, it shows you how deep baseball is in our culture, and it also shows you how competitive and sometimes ruinously competitive our, our culture can be. Exactly. It's, it's a perfect example of it. And speaking of which, um, players didn't really have as much uh, weight in the negotiating of contracts back in the day as they do now. Uh, it, it, a very unknown fact about the uh, the uh, mid-40s, uh, late-40s um, post-war baseball was the Mexican League's raid on, on some of these rosters. And the Dodgers were not immune, and Branch Rickey was not immune. Let's get into a little bit about that. What exactly happened with the Mexican League? Well, there were these brothers, the Pasquale brothers, uh, 
wealthy men, uh, and they had a Mexican League in the 30s, and after World War II, with the expected boom in baseball coming, they decided to make that Mexican League into uh, what they hoped would be a third major league, and they offered uh, contracts three to four times more than what uh, the uh, ball players were getting in America. Uh, they were they and the, there's stories about they they offered Stan Musial a, a hundred thousand dollars. They 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 opened a a suitcase full of of uh, money in front of Phil Rizzuto and Jackie Robinson. Uh, those being you know New York linchpins, uh, they they weren't tempted. But Vern Stevens, a shortstop with the St. Louis Browns, did go to Mexico. Mickey Owen, a Dodger catcher who was famous for missing that third strike in the 41 World Series uh, from UKC, and the Yankees took advantage and wound up winning that game and then the World Series the next day. Mickey Owen did go. Then he changed his mind about going, but Commissioner Chandler, who was the new commissioner... He was still on on the Dodger roster? Correct, but he hadn't signed his contract. And this, you know, I wrote this this whole book with a big chapter on Mexican League, The Imperfect Diamond, that's still in print in the third edition, Sam, because it was part of those in these crises of 46. And Owen went, then decided he would come back, but they banned him from five for five years for going. Bern Stevens went, got a look, got a taste of Mexican food, uh, and, and he came back in a couple of weeks, and he was able to play again. <laughs> Uh, the uh, but the big legal case that almost broke the reserve system was brought by a giant, uh, a wartime giant named Donnie, Danny Gordella, who was not signed by the Giants, and he and some of his other New York Giant tank, uh, teammates went down to Mexico and actually did play a year down there, and then they were banned from coming back. And not only that, when the Negro League teams and, and the Sandlot semi-pro teams like the Bushwicks tried to play with Gardella, they were told they would be blacklisted for playing with an outlaw. And so he got a very impressive lawyer who I got to know. I got to know both the late Gardella and the late lawyer, Frederick Johnson. They filed an antitrust suit saying that the, you cannot deny a man a, a livelihood uh, by by blacklist and other absolutely peremptory um, uh, judgments, and the courts uh, almost uh, uh, took it up uh, 24 years before Kurt Flood's case. Uh, but uh, Guardella accepted a settlement uh, and a chance to make the Cardinals, and, uh, and he was cut by the Cardinals in '49. And, and the other suits that were being brought were dropped, and Happy Chandler said that he felt uh, so happy that all these suits uh, uh, were settled that if he were a, dr- a drinking man, he'd go on a bender, you know. <laughs> Happy Chandler himself was not going to last much longer himself because he got involved in the pension plan uh, to give the players some rights. So it's really hard to understand in today's age where the the press and TV is filled with Jay-Z representing Robinson Cano now and, you know, tens of million dollars being thrown at, at players, some of whom are not very good. Uh, it's hard to believe what 
the conditions were back then. Uh, but but that's what they were, and and it's why I say that uh, uh, the American uh, baseball history is 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 tied to a, a particularly brutally competitive and sometimes incredibly restrictive part of American history. Absolutely, and it's it's a good thing in some in many many ways that it's it's gotten to to the way it is now that. Uh, there, there, there is less of what went on back in the day uh, now, and we only have a little bit left, a little bit of time left. But I'd like to end with Branch Rickey's uh, last couple years in the uh, with the Dodgers and and his his relationship with Walter O'Malley and how that led to him getting ousted. Uh, what exactly, uh, you know, in as short of a uh, as as short as, as possible. Um, how what exactly happened between Walter O'Malley and Branch Rickey? Well, Walter O'Malley was envious of Branch Rickey's fame and Branch Rickey's, you know, uh, the fact he was written up a lot. And uh, and O'Malley saw the Dodgers as a gold mine. I mean, he wanted a new stadium built uh, not long after World War II. And, you know, one of the tragedies of the Branch Rickey story in Brooklyn is that there was a third partner who was the wealthy man at the time, John L. Smith. And he he was talking about a stadium as well. But he supported Branch Rickey's farm system and the integration of the team. And if John L. Smith had lived, uh, I, I think Walter O'Malley would have had a hard time of buying Red Branch Rickey out of Brooklyn. But John L. Smith developed cancer, died in, in his early 60s during the All-Star break of 1950. By the end of the year, Branch Rickey didn't have a contract yet as general manager, and Branch O'Malley was able to buy him out. And um, uh, seven years later, of course, the team was in, in, in L.A. Now, a lot happened. It wasn't as easy as that. But uh, if Branch Rickey said many times that if he had stayed in Brooklyn in a position of authority, he never would have moved the tomb, the team. What what makes Rickey's story fascinating to me is that he went to Pittsburgh, tried to build that team from scratch, and did succeed. But he wasn't there to enjoy it because uh, he didn't get enough progress in his first five years. He then tried to run a third league, the Continental League, which didn't succeed. But because of it, it created the Mets and uh, the, the new teams of, of that, that developed in Minneapolis and Houston and years later in, uh, uh, in, in Atlanta. And actually, every one of the teams that would have been in this Continental League is in the big leagues now, except Buffalo, New York. So, you know, Ricky's uh, is a fascinating story, and it's why my book on him is 600 pages, because he packed an awful lot into his life, but he's he's best remembered and maybe rightfully best remembered for you know integrating baseball and his incredible eloquence about him. the real American fan and the Amer- American public doesn't care about the color of somebody's skin or the number of syllables in his last name. He just cares about whether he can play the game and play it well, and I think that's a great legacy that that that, that Branch Rickey has left, and I think the movie 42 caught in, in, in its essence as well. Yeah, they did do a great job with that element of it, and he's certainly a fascinating character that I'd love to have you on 
to talk more about him uh, at another time. Lee, I, I well, appreciate you very much coming on. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, well, I appreciate the work you're doing too, Sam, you know, bringing back the, the legacy of the Brooklyn Dodgers and Gladys Gooding, the organist, and, and you, Casey, and Freddie Fitzsimmons, who had a tavern and a bowling lane near the ballpark, respectively. And so, you know, keep up the good work, and, and we'll do this again sometime. Absolutely. Thank you very much. It's just it's a fascinating era in, in American history, and I, I look forward to exploring it more. Good. Well, that's our show, everybody. Thank you. Thank you very, very much for joining us. Tune in this Friday when Larry King will join me once more for the Bedford and Sullivan podcast. Take care, everybody.